Section 27 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 42 Troubles in the East, Part 2. The same year, 1860, saw also the troubles in the mountain terraces of the Lebanon, which likewise led to the combined intervention of England and France. The disturbances arose out of the rivalries and quarrels between two sects, the Maronites, and those whom Mr. Browning's poem describes as the Druze nation, warders on the mount of the world's secret since the birth of time. In the month of May, a Maronite monk was found murdered and suspicion fell upon the Druzes. Some Druzes were killed apparently in retaliation. Then there was some killings on each side. On May 28th, a general attack was made by the Druzes on the Maronite villages in the neighborhood of Beirut, and some of them were burnt down. A large town under Mount Hermon was attacked by the Druzes. The Turkish commander ordered the Maronites to lay down their arms, and promised that he would protect them. They did give up their arms, and the Turkish officer had the weapons removed. Then he seems to have abandoned the Maronites to their enemies. The Druzes, animated by such a spirit as might have belonged to their worshipped chief and saint, Hakim, poured into the palace and massacred them all. The Turkish soldiers did not make any attempt to protect them, but even, it was stated, in some cases, helped the Druzes in their work of butchery. In July, the fanatical spirit spread to Damascus, a mob of Turkish fanatics made a general attack upon the Christian quarter and burned the greater part of it down. The consulates of France, Russia, Austria, Holland, Belgium, and Greece were destroyed. Nearly 2,000 Christians were massacred in one day's work. Many of the respectable Mussulman inhabitants of Damascus were most generous and brave in their attempts to save and shelter the unfortunate Christians but the Turkish governor of Damascus, although he had a strong military force at his disposal, made no serious effort to interfere with the work of massacre, and as might be expected, his supineness was construed by the mob as an official approval of their doings, and they murdered with all the more vigor and zest. The famous Algerian chief, Abdul Qadir, was then living in Damascus, and he exerted himself nobly in the defense and protection of the Christians. France had treated him when fallen and a prisoner with something like generosity, and he well repaid in this season of horror to the Christians in Damascus any debt that he may have owed to a Christian people. The news of the massacres in the Lebanon naturally created a profound sensation in England. The cause of the disturbance was not very clearly understood in the first instance, and it was generally assumed that it was a mere quarrel of religion between Christians and Mohammedans. The Maronites, being Christians, a sect of Syrian Christians, united to Rome, although preserving their own primitive discipline, the Druzes were assumed to be Mussulmans. Mr. Urquhart gave an amusing and not altogether exaggerated description of the manner in which English public opinion is made up on Eastern questions. Conversing, he says, with a Druze of the Lebanon, long before this particular outbreak, he observed to the Druze, You get up one morning, 
and cut each other's throats then people at beirut or elsewhere sit down and write letters one says the maronites are a very virtuous and oppressed people of christians another says they are served right for they are only roman catholics one says the druses have done it all they are savages another the turks have done it all they are ferocious perfidious and fanatic then the people in london begin to write who dwell in rooms on the housetop this it is to be understood is mr urquhart's playful way of describing the authors of newspaper articles whom in accordance with the tradition still prevailing when he was young he assumes to be the occupants of garrets they say these people are very ill off we must protect them or we must punish them or we must convert them then they all cry out we must put down the turkish government after this has been written and paid for it is printed and after it is printed it is sold then all the nation buys it and after it has bought it it reads it while it is eating its breakfast then each man goes out and meets his friends and talks it this is the way the people of england occupy themselves about their affairs and they call it by a name which being translated means universal guess they smile then at each other and say we are great men we know all that is doing in the world we govern the world like unto us were none since noah came out of the ark mr urquhart was a very clever self-opinionated and often curiously wrong-headed man he had seen much of the east and had a knowledge of eastern ways and eastern history which few englishmen could equal but he was under the absolute dominion of a mania with regard to russia which distorted all his faculties men who found that he could entertain as articles of faith some theories about english diplomacy and english statesmen which seemed almost too wild for the ordinary occupant of a madhouse might well begin to doubt whether all his knowledge of the east must necessarily help him to any better conclusions about asia than he had formed about the political men and affairs of his own country in the passage which has been quoted he did however give a very fair exposition of the confusion of idea that prevailed in england about the disturbances in syria he was also able to make it quite clear that whatever the druses were they were not mussulmans the nooks of the mountain a well-informed writer says are not more sequestered from the dwellings of man then the faith of the Druzes is segregated from that of Christian or Moslem. Mr. Urquhart ascribed the cause of the quarrels to the intervention of the European powers in 1840, and, of course, to the secret influence of Russia working through that intervention. It is probable that the intervention did help in one sense to lead to the dissensions. The great powers started in 1840 and in 1841, a variety of theories about the better government of the lebanon one of which was that it should have two governors a druze and a maronite this was found impracticable owing to the fact that in many parts of the lebanon the two sects were living in inextricable companionship the bare idea however was probably effectual in starting a new sort of rivalry the port did finally grant a certain amount of administrative autonomy to the lebanon and having granted this under pressure it is not unlikely 
that they were anxious to reduce it to as little of practical value as possible probably the port was not unwilling to make use of any antipathy existing between druses and maronites the port was also under the impression rightly or wrongly that the maronites were planning an attack upon the druses with the object of shaking off the turkish yoke it may be that constantinople was anxious to anticipate matters and to call in the fanaticism of the druses to rid them of the maronites certainly the manner in which the turkish officials at first seemed to connive at the massacres might have justified any such suspicion in the mind of europe england and france took strong and decisive steps they resolved upon instant intervention to restore tranquillity to the lebanon a convention was drawn up to which all the great powers of europe agreed and which turkey had to accept by the convention england and france were entrusted with the duty of restoring order france undertook to supply the troops required in the first instance further requirements were to be met as the intervening powers might think fit the intervening powers pledged themselves reciprocally not to seek for any territorial advantage or exclusive influence england sent out lord dufferin to act as her commissioner and lord dufferin accomplished his task with as much spirit as judgment the turkish government to do it justice had at last shown great energy in punishing the authors and the abettors of the massacres the sultan sent out fuad pasha his minister for foreign affairs to the lebanon and fuad pasha showed no mercy to the promoters of the disturbances or even to the highly placed official of betters of them the governor of damascus and the commander of the turkish troops suffered death for their part in the transactions and about sixty persons were publicly executed in the city of whom the greater number belonged to the turkish police force lord dufferin described what he actually saw in such a manner as to prove that even alarmed rumour had hardly exaggerated the horrors of the time lord dufferin tells that he came to deir el kamar a few days after the massacre almost every house was burnt and the street crowded with dead bodies some of them stripped and mutilated in every possible way my road led through some of the streets my horse could not even pass for the bodies were literally piled up most of those i examined had many wounds and in each case the right hand was either entirely or nearly cut off the poor wretch in default of weapons having instinctively raised his arm to parry the blow aimed at him i saw little children of not more than four years old stretched on the ground and old men with grey beards the intervention was successful in restoring order and in providing for the permanent peace of syria it had one great recommendation it was thorough it was in that respect a model intervention to intervene in the affairs of any foreign state is a task of great responsibility the cases are few indeed in which it can be justified or even excused but it has long been to all seeming a principle of european statesmanship that turkey is a country in the government of which it is necessary for other powers to intervene from time to time the whole of the policy of what is called the eastern question is based on the assumption that turkey is to be upheld by external influence 
and that being thus virtually protected, she is liable also to be rebuked and kept in order. Now there may be some doubt as to the propriety of intervening at all in the affairs of Turkey, but there can be no doubt that when intervention does take place, it should be prompt and it should be thorough. The independence of Turkey is at an end when a conference of foreign ministers sits round a table to direct what she is to do. It is then merely a question of convenience and expediency as to the extent to which intervention shall go. Nothing can be more illogical and more pernicious in its way than to say, we shall intervene just far enough to take away from the Turkish government its domestic supremacy and its responsibility. But out of consideration for its feelings or its convenience, we will not intervene far enough to make it certain that what we think necessary will be promptly and efficiently done. In the case of the Syrian disturbances, the intervention was conducted on a practical principle. The great powers acting on the assumption which alone could justify their interference that Turkey was not in a condition to restore order herself proceeded to do this for her in the most energetic and complete manner. The consent of Turkey was not considered necessary. The Sultan was distinctly informed that the interference would take place whether he approved of it or not. When the intervention had succeeded in thoroughly restoring order, the representatives of the great powers assembled in Constantinople unanimously agreed that a Christian governor of the Lebanon should be appointed in subordination to the Sultan, and the Sultan had, of course, no choice but to agree to this proposition. The French troops evacuated Syria in June 1861, and thereby much relieved the minds of many Englishmen who had long forgotten all about the domestic affairs of the Lebanon in their alarm, lest the French imperial troops, having once set foot in Syria, should not easily be induced to quit the country again. This was not merely a popular and ignorant alarm. On June 26, 1861, Lord Palmerston wrote to the British ambassador at Constantinople, Sir Henry Bulwer, I am heartily glad we have got the French out of Syria, and a hard job it was to do so. The arrangement made for the future government of the Lebanon will, I dare say, work sufficiently well, to prevent the French from having any pretext for returning thither. In the same letter, Lord Palmerston makes a characteristic allusion to the death of the Sultan of Turkey, which had taken place the very day before. Abdul Majid was a good-hearted and weak-headed man, who was running two horses to the goal of perdition, his own life and that of his empire. Luckily for the empire, his own life won the race. Then Palmerston adds, if the accounts we have heard of the new sultan are true, we may hope that he will restore Turkey to her proper position among the powers of Europe. A day or two after, Lord Woodhouse, on the part of the government, expressed to the House of Lords a confident hope that a new era was about to dawn upon Turkey. Another new era. It would hardly be fitting to close the history of this stormy year without giving a few lines to record the peaceful end of a life which had, through its earlier parts, been one of sturt and strife. Quietly in his Kensington home, passed away in the late autumn of this year, Thomas Cochrane, the gallant Dundonald, 
the hero of the basque roads the volunteer who lent his genius and his courage to the cause of brazil of chile and of greece a sort of peterborough of the waves a swiss of heaven lord dundonald had been the victim of a cruel although not surely intentional injustice he was accused as every one knows of having had a share in the famous stock-jobbing frauds of eighteen fourteen he was tried found guilty sentenced to fine and imprisonment expelled from the house of commons dismissed from the service which he had helped to make yet more illustrious than he found it and deprived of all his public honours he lived to see his innocence believed in as well by his enemies as by his friends william the fourth reinstated him in his naval rank and queen victoria had the congenial task of completing the restoration of his well-won honours it was not however until many years after his death that the country fully acquitted itself of the mere money debt which it owed to lord dundonald and his family cochrane was a radical in politics and for some years sat as a colleague of sir francis burdett in the representation of westminster he carried on in the house of commons many a bitter argument with mr john wilson crocker when the latter was secretary to the admiralty it cannot be doubted that cochrane's political views and his strenuous way of asserting them made him many enemies and that some men were glad of the opportunity for revenge which was given by the accusation got up against him his was an impatient spirit little suited for the discipline of parliamentary life his tongue was often bitter and he was too apt to assume that a political opponent must be a person unworthy of respect even in his own service he was impatient of rebuke to those under his command he was always genial and brotherly but to those above him he was sometimes wanting in that patient submission which is an essential quality of those who would learn how to command with most success cochrane's true place was on his quarter-deck his opportunity came in the extreme moment of danger then his spirit asserted itself his gift was that which wrenches success out of the very jaws of failure and he saw his way most clearly when most others began to despair during part of his later life he had been occupying himself with some inventions of his own some submarine methods for blowing up ships some engines which were by their terrible destructiveness to abridge the struggles and agonies of war at the time of the crimean war he offered to the government to destroy sebastopol in a few hours by some of his plans the proposal was examined by a committee and was not accepted it was his death on october thirtieth eighteen sixty which recalled to the mind of the living generation the hero whose exploits had divided the admiration of their fathers with those of nelson of collingwood and of sidney smith a new style of naval warfare has come up since those days and perhaps cochrane may be regarded as the last of the old sea kings end of section twenty seven